Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good day, good friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod with a very special guest today, one of the most outspoken and courageous voices in American politics. You know, John F. Kennedy wrote a wonderful book called Profiles in Courage about senators who defied their party in defense of basic American values. Well, I think somebody today needs to write a new book called Profiles in Courage about Republicans who dared stand up and defy their party's surrender to Donald Trump, those who still stand strong and speak out today against MAGA Republicans. And the first chapter of that book, should be devoted to Stuart Stevens, a longtime top Republican strategist and ad maker and chief political advisor to Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. Stevens was one of the very first to stand up and say, Donald Trump's not a real Republican. He's not even a real conservative. That was in 2016. Stevens joined the Lincoln Project, founded in 2019, by a group of moderate Republicans, most of them former uh, Republican strategists like himself, to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. And in 2020, he published a powerful indictment of the MAGA Republican Party called It Was All a Lie. Today, Stuart Stevens is more engaged than ever in efforts to block Donald Trump from getting back in the White House and in getting the Republican Party back on track. Stuart Stevens, so good to connect with you, and welcome welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Bill Press, thank you for inviting me. First time caller, long time fan. <laughs> You're very good, thank you. Now, we know, congratulations, you've got the, the new book coming out uh, next month, uh, Stuart, but I, I want to I talk to you first a little bit about your last book, 2020, and the book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. You know, I always laugh when people say, well, this isn't your grandfather's Republican Party today. Stuart, would you agree? It's not just not your grandfather's Republican Party. It's not your father's Republican Party. It's not your own Republican Party today. Yeah, you know, Bill, I have I have mixed and somewhat contradictory views on this. <laughs> you know, in, in 2016, there are a lot of people who are wrong about Donald Trump, but it's really hard to find anybody who is more wrong than me. Hmm. I didn't think he'd win the primary or the general. And when he did, I had a lot of my Republican friends said, well, you know, this isn't the party Donald Trump hijacked it. And I'm like, I don't really know if that makes sense because he's the most popular person in the party. And in that old kind of high school English way that if you can't write it, you don't understand it. I really started what became it was all a lot. It wasn't an intention to, to, to be a book. And, you know, what I came to the conclusion was that there had always been these two strands of the Republican Party since uh, World War II, an Eisenhower strand that was sane, governing, uh, boring, and a Joe McCarthy strand, mm -hmm. uh, conspiratorial, xenophobic, often racist, non-governing. And those of us who were in the George Bush world, you know, we, 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 we were, I would say, in the Eisenhower wing. Mm -hmm. you know, we, were, we were mostly boring, but we're definitely governing. <laughs> 
And I think that we assumed, at least I can say for myself, I assumed that we were the dominant gene. And there was yeah. this other dark side, which I'm, I'm sure we played to too much. But we thought that if only because of the changing country, that the party would have to follow us. And I, I don't know any conclusion to come to, but that uh, that was wrong. And we, and we were the recessive gene and that the party ha- is right now what the party wanted wants to be. So, in other words, Donald Trump didn't take it over overnight, right? The party exactly. almost, yeah, the party almost was sitting there waiting for him, had been priming itself for somebody like Trump. You know, it's a fascinating question, Bill, because, so I worked for Romney. We, we lost, by the way, if you hadn't heard that. <laughs> yes. So, just, just wanted to let you know. You know, and I think people have a lot better sense of Mitt Romney as a person now. And, Amen. Amen. You know, yeah. had... Romney won, the party would have gone in a very different direction. But it would have been the same party, for the most part. Not, I mean, there's a lot of these people who, you know, are around Trump. It's not like they woke up in 2015, 16, and wanted to get involved in presidential politics. A lot of these people always wanted to get involved in presidential politics, and, you know, nobody would let them in because they were freaks and weirdos and nuts. But it is the same party. I, I think it's a fascinating example of probably of, of what, when we still had civics classes, we used to study that leadership counts. And, you know, I asked myself a lot, why is it the country didn't become fascist in the 30s when there was a huge fascist movement and so much of the other world was, and, and probably because of uh, Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Trump gave the party permission to be its worst self. And once that happens, it is very difficult to walk it back. And, you know, that's really why I wrote this new book, because, I, you know, I think when democracies slide into autocracies, one of the key elements is you need support of a major party. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, there'd always been this element of, of hate in American politics, you know, Father Coughlin, and we could go on and on. But it has not been embraced and codified to the degree it is now by the Republican Party. I'm, I was struck by your, the title, the subtitle of It Was All a Lie, how the Republican Party became Donald Trump, right? You don't say it became a whole lot of Trump. It became all about one man, right? I don't remember a political party being like that in our lifetime. It, it, is a party today the equivalent of a religious cult? Well, you know, that, that's a really interesting question. I, you know, my, my hesitancies on using cult is, I, I think it is both true, but inadequate. You know, there's a, there's a, a Taylor Swift cult. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it is definitely a non-governing movement is really what I would call it. And Trumpism is much bigger than Trump. And we, we've seen that now. And, you know, if I just woke you up in the middle of the night, you know, 15 years ago and said, hey, Bill, we're going to have a major ground war in Europe. And guess what? The major supporters of Russia are going to be the conservatives in the Republican Party. You would have said, like, you're crazy. You're crazy. Yeah. Dude, yeah. it's not going to happen. And yet that's where we are. You know, I, I, I think there's, there's a good case to be made, Bill, that this in some ways is all about race. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the country is becoming a majority minority country. In fact, in many ways, it already has. If you're 16 years and younger, the majority of Americans are non-white. 
you know, and odds are really, really good. They're still going to be non-white when they turn 18. And Trump's coalition is 85 percent white. And in a country that is 60, 59 percent white and declining, you know, since we've been talking, the Republican Party's inability to attract non-white voters, I think, is the great tragedy of the party. And it has led it in many ways to where it is now, that instead of doing the hard work necessary to attract and expand the party, the tragic choice was made to try to maximize a white vote, which leads you to these racist, xenophobic, dog whistle politics that has now become, for the most part, the mainstream of the Republican Party. Which is fueled, right, by a lot of white people who fear loss of political power. I, I think that is absolutely right. And it, if you look at what happened uh, you know, on January 6th, it was a lot of things. But among, at its core, it was an attempt to disenfranchise Black Americans. Where were all these votes that they said were illegal? Suspicious. Right. Yeah. Chicago, mm-hmm. Atlanta, Philadelphia. Now, well, why is that? You know, it wasn't like, you know, Sioux City, Iowa. <laughs> right. And that really is at, at the root of this. And, you know, we failed at this when I worked in the party, right? I mean, in, in Bush world, we failed at this. But at least we admitted it was a failure. You know, Ken Melman, when he ran the party, went in front of the NAACP in 2005 and apologized for the Southern strategy. Now, does that matter? I think it does. But, you know, there's two stats that just blow my mind here, uh, Bill. One is 1956, Eisenhower gets 39 percent of the African-American vote. 39 percent. Nixon got 33 percent. Jackie Robinson campaigned for Nixon. Then it it drops to 7 percent with Goldwater. Whoa. He's against the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. Now, you could have made a case, I think, that after the Civil Rights Act passed, for reasons of patriotism, shared cultural values, entrepreneurship, social conservatism, African-Americans in some numbers would have come back to the party. But it didn't happen. Trump got 8%. So you go up one point every 56 years, this is going to take a while. Especially since they're doing nothing to bring them in, right? They're doing nothing to bring Exactly. So here's another stat that's just so telling, I think. 1980, Ronald Reagan wins his sweeping landslide with 55% of the white vote. 2008, John McCain loses a not particularly close race with 58% of the white vote. And in many ways, that's the story of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I worked in the Romney campaign, you could look at polls. We did look at polls. (laughs) And you could see there was a group of white voters, infrequent voters, largely, you know, what now is come to be called low information voters, or I've never liked that, who could care less about any message we had about taxes or smaller government. or. But if you went out there and waved the bloody shirt, you did what Trump did and do Muslims and uh, Mexicans are rapists and played to that dark side, there was reason to believe you could motivate those voters. Now, I would have bet, you know, of course, with Romney, now we have a sense of Romney. If anybody got into Romney's office and suggested that, you know, Two minutes later, you wouldn't have been working for the Romney campaign. I mean, was never, I mean, this is like not going to happen. But I would have bet just in a political science sense that whatever you gained at the lower end of those voters, you were lost with college educated Republicans who would have been so offended by it and dropped off. Yeah. And in 2016, that was happening right up until the Comey letter. And then Trump got just enough of them. And in 2020, this is really what those of us in the Lincoln Project were focused on. That four to five and a half, six percent in some areas of Republicans stay voted for Biden. And that made the difference in a lot of these close states. So you mentioned 
the word leadership a little while. Is it, I, I, I'm curious your thoughts on that because is that what you see lacking today in terms of leadership? Leaders, I mean, if you look at today's leaders of the Republican Party in terms of standing up to Donald Trump or standing for what the Republican Party, the basic principles it used to stand for, right? And you look at today's Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Mike Pence, you don't see a lot of backbone there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, there's sort of that rule you can't talk about World War II because then it reduces everything to certain a level of, you know, comparison is always in that. But I will never ask myself on 1930s Germany happened again because I think it's an exact repeat. I know these people. I helped elect a lot of these people, right? Mm-hmm. They are not bad people. If they live next door to you, they'd be good neighbors. They'd stop on the road to help you change a tire. And they've backed Trump. And I cannot tell you how extraordinarily disappointing and stunning and kind of gutting this is to me. I mean, when I wrote It Was All a Lie and a you know, book came out and I started doing interviews like this and people would ask me about this. And I found that I, would, I, I had a hard time even talking about it without choking up because it was just so unimaginable to me. It was watching like a betrayal of, of, of a close friend or family member. And I mean, I know these people today. They still don't. They, 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 these are people that wouldn't let Donald Trump in their house. Literally, but they're, they're, they have given the party to Trumpism. And I know exactly why they did it. They did it. And, and the parallels in 1930s Germany's are exact. You know, of all the books I read when I was working on this stuff, the one that really stuck with me the most, I think, are a book by a guy named Franz von Papen, who was a Prussian aristocrat who really more than anybody else ushered Hitler into power in the 30s. And he wrote a memoir in 1953, which actually you can get on Kindle for some reason. I have no idea what it's like. It's a for Franz von Papen that's on Kindle. And so in 1953, you can say things had gone a little sideways, right? I mean, you know, World War, 100 million people dead, Holocaust. He still was trying to justify what they did. Wow. And his logic went, it's exactly the same as the McConnells of the world, that we, the ruling class, had lost touch with the working class. And they were going to become Bolsheviks which was largely true. Uh, and we needed someone like Adolf Hitler to bring those voters back to that constituency, that working class constituency back to us or Germany would have gone Bolshevik. And this is exactly what, what the, the party's done. They said, we've lost touch with these voters. We need Trump. And there are statements by, by Mitch McConnell in 2016 that are almost verbatim the same as what Franz von Papen said in the 30s, he will change to us. Their role will change him. And of course, it never happened. And now, I mean, you take a guy like Glenn Youngkin in in Virginia, right? Right. You know, he's the kind of guy that at one time in my life I would have thought would be a great client. You know, seems like a nice enough guy, got a lot of money, smart enough, gets elected. So what happens? He's out campaigning with Terry Lake, you know, a nuts as a bunny election denier. Yunkin didn't change Terry Lake. Terry Lake changed Yunkin. Yeah, right. And, and that's what's happened with the party. And this is why, you know, I mean, I, I just came to all of these things we said were values. I, I, I don't know any conclusion to come to, but that they were just marketing slogans. I, I don't think you, you abandoned deeply held beliefs in a few years. It just means you didn't deeply hold them. Right. All a lie, as you say, right? All a lie. Do you think today Donald Trump will be the Republican Party nominee in 2024? Yes. Really? Sure. Why not? I mean, he's, I mean, he's, 
he is what the party wants to be. He could and, be a, he could be a convicted felon. Well, I, I, you know, you have to get inside their mind, Bill. So, if you believe this, all makes a certain logical sense. It's kind of like a crop circle. It makes sense if you like really believe that aliens and they did this, and well, then they've done crop circles. So, if you believe that there is a deep state, and you know, what Trumpism has done, it's changed the relationship that these Republican voters have with their citizenship. To be an American under Ronald Reagan, say what you will about Ronald Reagan's politics. Ronald Reagan had the premise and the worldview that if you were born an American, you had won life's lottery. Yep. And there were a lot of inequalities in America for sure, but nobody was disadvantaged for having been born an American. In Donald Trump's world, to be born an American is to be a victim. You're a sucker. You're a chump. There are these powerful forces in the world out there like Canada <laughs> that are taking <laughs> advantage of us. And his role is to settle the score. So they look at, at Trump and him getting indicted is perfect proof that the system, first of all, he is the president of the United States. Everybody knows that. The election was still in, without right. a doubt. So it's not enough to have to steal the election. Now they're trying to you know, put him in jail so that he can never hold office again. So the, the indictments just reinforce your conviction and your worldview. It's extraordinarily negative view. It's, it's, it's a nihilistic view. But majority of Americans of the second, one of the two largest you know, political parties in America don't believe that we have a legal president. So think about that. What does that mean? The follow-up question, obviously, is if he is the nominee, are there enough Trumpers, enough MAGA supporters that he could win? Do you think he could win in 2024 if he's a nominee? Here's the thing, though. It's not just Trump. I mean, the, the, the only economic group that Trump carried in 20 were those who make over $100,000 a year. So there's all these people out there who, you know, these nice people who we know that are doing quite very well in America. And they're voting for Donald Trump. Now, they'll, they'll, they, they don't like Donald Trump. They think he's crude. They hate, you know, his, the fact that, you know, he's a guy who goes out there and talks about having sex with his daughter in public. But they're voting for him. And, you know, that is the thing. If you look at the corporate support for the Republican Party, you know, there was a big push after uh, January 6th for corporations not to support those who voted not yeah. Certify the election. Well, a lot of that has crumbled. But if you give to the Republican Governors Association, what are they doing? They're supporting Terry Lake in Arizona, who still thinks that Trump won and still thinks she won. They supported Mastriano. Yep. They're, you know, they're supporting Glenn Youngkin, who says that Terry Lake should be governor. So they're they're going along with this. And you know, this is part of the reason I wrote this book. You know, the, the problem with the unimaginable is it's hard to imagine. And whenever autocracy, democracy slides into autocracy, those who believe in democracy never can imagine it happening. And look, I, I think one of the difficulties we have, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you struggle with this every day when, in your, your conversations, is how do we talk about this without sounding alarmist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, to me, it's sort of like a pandemic. Whatever you say at the beginning will sound alarmist, and at the end will prove inadequate. Yeah. But I know these people. I mean, Jason Miller was my intern, God help me. I, I say this, 
and I can't believe I'm saying it and I believe it, but if Donald Trump or a Trump wannabe like DeSantis is elected president, I think it'll be the last election that we can recognize as an American election. And wow. Certainly wow. during my lifetime. I can't tell wow. you. I can't tell you about a, you know, somebody who's fifteen. But so on that point, let me just uh, that's I'm a very good, depressing bill, by the way. No, no, that, that's a good time to take a break and take a breath here. So uh, let's do that very quickly and then come back and I want to hear more about what you lay out in uh, in your next book, The Conspiracy to End America. Hold on there. Hold on that thought. We'll be right back. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong. They're the backbone of the labor labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines, and in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the Laborers' Union, supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back to today's podcast uh, with a great new guest, great guest today. First time on the Bill Press Pod, Stuart Stevens, a longtime GOP strategist, uh, not a MAGA Republican at all, one of the founders of the Lincoln Project. Uh, his book, It Was All a Lie, made a lot of news and noise in 2020. Uh, he's out October 10 with a new book, The Conspiracy to End America. Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. So, uh, Stuart, welcome back. So it's happening, is what you say. It's underway, right? Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah. and, and look, the reason I wrote this book was that it occurs to me that we talk about these five elements. And, and when you look at when democracy slides into autocracy, these five elements just keep reoccurring and all seem to be an essential element. And we, we talk a lot about them, but we don't talk about the collective power of them and how they are and sometimes very overtly working together and, and sometimes how they are just complementary. And, and if you run down them, what are they? They're the support of a major party, which Republican you know, party has become a Trumpism party. No question. The official position of the Republican. I mean, the 20 platform is to support Donald Trump. 
I mean, that was what the Republican platform even put in writing. Yeah, yeah. It's just if you'd ever been part of platform fights in the Republican Party, which were kind of like <laughs> faculty fights, you know, the smaller the stakes, the greater the arguments. Just that that would happen is just so unimaginable. You need financiers, which certainly have endlessly. Mm-hmm. You need propagandists, and there is this whole you know world out there that you've been a voice against, you know, your entire career. You need a legal system that justifies it. Mm-hmm. You see this developing constantly. And one of the th- things I talk about in this book is that the group that gave us the Federalist Society, led by Leonard Leo, which, you know, started as a weekend conference at Yale in 1984 and cut to 23. Got to say they did pretty well, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that same group, led by Leonard Leo, is now and, been given- and Jenny Thomas, we have and to throw in there, right? Jenny <laughs> Thomas, yes, yes has now been given $1.6 billion and the largest political donation in American history by far. And for the most part, Leonard Leo's focus now is not on the judiciary, it's on changing these laws. And this is being done a lot under the radar screen. Every weekend in America, there are meetings that focus on local elected officials, poll workers, and state legislators. They're, they're trying to change the legal structure of how you elect you run elections in America. So, you know, you, you look at the, the recent uh, Supreme Court case of Moore versus North Carolina, which was a test of the so-called, you know, legislative authority. Or could, the state, could a state legislature overturn popular vote? Not just of the presidency, but any election. And there was sort of a celebration that it fails six to three. But then if you back up, you go, okay, so that means three people in the Supreme Court believe that legislators, state legislatures can overturn popular vote on any election. And you compare you compare with, you know, nineteen eighty four where the Federalist Society started out. That's not a bad start. It it, you know, Georgia passes a law that the legislature can overturn the popular vote. When they do it, you can't say it's illegal. Perfectly legal. Do you think uh, this means our democracy is under attack today? Oh God, of course our democracy is under attack. I mean that's Look, I mean, that, that's another thing we don't talk about enough, which blows my mind. 2015, without a doubt, no question, Russians started a deliberate effort to help elect Donald Trump president. Every one of the U.S. intelligence agencies agrees on this. Republican-led uh, Senate Intelligence Committee agrees on this. Trump won. Who ran it? Well, this guy Brzezorgan ran it. The guy who ran the Wagner Group who just fell out of the sky, you know, the other day. He was on... Mm. You know, it wasn't covered enough when he was murdered by Putin, assuming he was murdered, but he was under indictment in the United States for attacking the election. So, you know, there's one simple through thread here. You could say Russians supported Trump, Trump won. What did they get? Well, it turns out they got a lot. So now the what was the greatest decade long opponents of the Soviet Union and Russian totalitarianism was a conservative element of the Republican Party. Yep. That now is a pro-Putin element of the Republican Party for the most part. How did that happen? I mean, it's extraordinary. And the three leading candidates for the Republican nomination for president have basically the same position on the Russian genocide as Putin. Territorial dispute, they're going to limit or cut off aid to Ukraine. It's three leading candidates. And that's become accepted in the Republican Party. Now, there's still people out there that oppose it in the Republican Party, thank God. But just that idea that that has become. Now, if you look, if Donald Trump had lost in 16, would there be a Marjorie Taylor Greene? No, unquestionably there wouldn't be. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene is the second most powerful person in the House. And she's basically a Putin mouthpiece. So I don't think we talk about this. Kind of this, you know, Trump has this way of he just says stuff and it becomes normalized because he's saying it. It's like Nixon went out and said, look, let me read you what was in the missing 18 minutes. And then it's like, well, well OK, <laughs> you know, it's not missing anymore. We quit talking about it. But they like Putin. They like Russia because they see Russia, the fantasy of Russia, as a fantasy they want America. They're hmm. all white people running it. There are no women in power. As Putin has said, there are no gays in Russia. I mean, everybody knows that. Right. It has autocratic government where you have show elections, but the determination of who's going to win is pre-decided. And they see it as like, you know, they're all Christians, which of course is nonsense for Russia. It was, you know, millions and millions and millions of Muslims and non-Christians, but that's how they see it. And you listen to Ron DeSantis, that's pretty much the world he wants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Putin, like all authoritarians, he rewrites history to suit his needs, to justify what he's doing. There never was a Ukraine. Therefore, we're not attempting to exterminate the existence of Ukraine as a nation because there never was a nation. How do you end something that never existed? And so same with Ron DeSantis. You know, we're going to have a debate about slavery now. Really. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're really going to do that. So, look, I, I don't think, you know, there's... Uh, this question is: Can the Republican Party revert to something normal? Right. You know, I was, you know, I was heading there. That question, and can we, which is sort of the same question: Can we stop this relentless drive to autocracy, from democracy to autocracy, and how? Listen, God help me. I, I never thought I'd say this. You know, I spent thirty years or so pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, but there's only one mainstream American pro-democracy party in America, and it's the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is an autocratic movement, and the Republican Party is not going to change on its own. I mean, think about it. Mitch McConnell, on January 5th, 2021, wakes up. He's majority leader of the Senate. January 6th, he wakes up and he's running for his life as minority leader in the Senate, and they're trying to kill his colleague. And he still won't vote to convict Trump. So if you won't convict somebody that or you know, encourages a mob to come into your office and try to kill you and your fellow workers, what are you gonna, is there another line you're going to cross? Really? I mean, so there's only one. You have to beat these people and you have to beat them and beat them and beat them. And that is the only way because there's nothing inside. There is no look at what's going to happen with Chris Christie, former client of mine, Asa Hutchinson, former client of mine. How are they going to do in the Republican primary? That'll be it. There's not a market for it. And instead, you have, you know, Ramaswamy and and DeSantis who are running to the right of Trump. They're trying to. And that's those inside the party who don't agree with this, which I think are the majority of the senators, they've just abdicated their their role. What's the Lincoln Project up to these days or going to be up to in 2024? Our focus from the very beginning, you know, Lincoln Project was formed originally by a group of former Republican consultants who hated what the party had come and has been focused on what we call the Bannon line, because Steve Bannon in 20 said, if these guys can go out and affect four to 6% of the Republican party, we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> right. So, you know, usually in politics, those who are the last to join are the first to leave for obvious reasons. They were the most skeptical, the ones that had the biggest doubts. So those, that segment of college educated, for the most part, Republicans who ended up voting for Trump reluctantly, our focus in 20 was trying to get them to vote for Biden. And our focus continues. So 
you know, Biden won by, you know, close to 8 million votes, but if 44,000 people had changed their votes in exactly the right places, Trump would be president today. So this is going to be a very tight election. It's going to be a game of small numbers. We spent our careers talking to these voters. These were Republican voters. And you won or lost elections by your ability to motivate them, to get them to vote for your candidate, to get them to turn out. So that's what we're focused on. When I first started working for the Lincoln Project, what really struck me, Bill, was how liberating it was not to have a client. Because, you know, if you're working for a candidate and you go out and you call your opponent a liar, and a reporter asks your candidate, is your opponent a liar? The opponent better damn well say yes. <laughs> but, you know, we could put a billboard of Jarrett and Ivanka up in Times Square and nobody went to Joe Biden and said, how did you let this happen? And it gives us a lot of freedom to be focused on what we think is the most effective to change these votes. And the single message that works best with these voters is asking the question, is this who you are? You, you, you know these people. They're, they're, they're normal people. They're decent yeah. people. Yeah. And they don't, you, you ask a suburban mother who's most of them working, most of them involved in the community. Do you want to be Marjorie Taylor Greene? You want to be that angry, crude person? And they're like, no, I don't want to be that. Do you want to be the club Auschwitz guy in the sweatshirt? They don't. And I think that's what you have. That is that is the most persuasive. That if you support these people, this is what you're supporting. And this is not who we are. I have to tell you, the other thing that I loved about the Lincoln Project, it, you drove Donald Trump crazy. I mean, you really knew how to get under Donald Trump's skin with the spots that you did. Yeah, and... <laughs> you know, it later came out, and I find this sort of mind-boggling, but, you know, we we were sitting around after the election, and it occurred to us, you know, Donald Trump is such a moron. He doesn't understand the process of American elections enough to know that Mike Pence is going to certify this election. And we made a spot about it, made an ad about it. Hey, Donald, you know, Rick Wilson invented this genre we call whispers. It's sort of like an internal monologue inside of Donald Trump's head. And it's like, hey, Donald. You know, Mike, who's going to certify the election, it's Mike. And apparently from reading all these great books about the election, uh, Trump didn't know this until he saw our video. So it's like, is that true? Is that really? Is that how it works? The vice president does that? And, you know, we got his campaign manager fired because his campaign manager was, well, let's just say I've worked in a lot of campaigns and the phenomenon of campaign managers buying lots of fancy boats and Ferraris and fancy cars usually didn't happen. Uh, and it was happening in the Trump campaign. And, you know, Trump hates the idea that anybody would be ripping him off. And I, I think that we still have that ability to to speak to these people. You know, the only group, over $3 billion was spent in the 2020 election. The only group that Trump tried to have the Justice Department shut down was the Lincoln Project. And that's because yeah. you know, they, they, yeah. they don't like Democrats, but they hate us. I mean, they see <laughs> us as like race traitors. Yeah. And they know yeah. that we understand them. And that's, that's uh, more, yeah, more power to you, more power to you. So personally, right, looking back, Stuart, any regrets? Oh, Bill, you know, the first, the first line basically, and it was all a lie is blame me. You know, one of the things that qualities that drew me to the Republican Party was a sense of personal responsibility. And I, I, I don't, I was part of this. You know, there's that whole trope of books that people write about Washington, if only they had listened to me. I, I couldn't write that book. They did listen to me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I helped elect a lot of these people. I was there. So, you know, I have resisted 
any temptation to blame others, like to point to this client or this person, I, I, it's a collective guilt. And I, I share that tremendously. And I, I, I ask myself, why didn't I see this? How didn't it happen? And the honest answer is, you know, I, I was a campaign guy. I liked campaigns. I worked for Republicans. I was happy when we won and sad when we lost. I didn't have a very complicated sort of, you know, values. <laughs> right. And I never really thought about it. And I, I, I have tremendous regret, but tremendous, almost to a point where it's kind of difficult for me to talk about it. But I don't know what to do with that except to take these skills that I have, those of us in the Lincoln Project share, and try to do what we can to help kill the Republican Party that we help create. Even though this isn't the vision of the party, we can't say we weren't, I can't say I wasn't responsible. Well, all I can say, Stuart, is they may not have been listening to you then, but we are listening to you now uh, and really appreciate your candor and your courage uh, and your voice. So um, keep it up. We're going to have a link up uh, on our uh, podcast here where people can pre-order a copy of your new book, again, The Conspiracy to End America Five Ways My Old Party's Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy, out October 10, uh, I believe, Stuart. But you can pre-order it. Uh, go to the episode notes of our podcast today, friends. Uh, and Stuart, please come back uh, and let's talk about the book in more detail. I'd love to, brother. Thank you. Thank you for Meanwhile, asking. Meanwhile, keep, keep getting in trouble, okay? <laughs> All, right. All right. And that's it for today's podcast with Stuart Stevens. Again, if you check out the uh, episode notes to today's podcast, Uh, There's a link there for you to pre-order Stuart's new book, The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party's Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Boy, it's going to be a busy, busy political week. The House and the Senate are back, both back in session. Uh, There'll be some important votes this week leading up to uh, a government shutdown or not. Uh, That's going to be a challenge for Kevin McCarthy. And talking about challenges for Kevin McCarthy, his most important advisor, Marjorie Taylor Greene, last week she was talking about impeaching Joe Biden. This week, she's actually saying that if if they don't do something about immigration and people crossing the border, that states should consider seceding from the union. Yes, last week impeachment, this week secession. Uh, Okay, Kevin, we'll see how you deal with that from your top advisor. All of that should make great fodder for the roundtable on Friday. That's uh, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our reporter's roundtable every Friday. So have a great week, folks, and then come back and see us Friday as we wrap up the week with the reporter's roundtable. See you then.